Criminology is a true crime podcast that may contain discussion about violent or disturbing topics. Listener discretion is advised. Welcome, everyone, to Episode 3, Season 2 of Criminology. I'm Mike Ferguson. And this is Morph. And we have a lot more in store for you as we dive into this case. All right, Morph, we have a bunch of new Patreon supporters that I want to give shout-outs to. We had Marla Campbell, Claire Norman Gibbs, Carol C., who is a huge supporter on True Crime All the Time as well, so appreciate that. Deb Ryhall, Brittany Staub, Christopher Lillis, Rachel Poole, who's another TCAT supporter. We had Amber Davidson, Amy Murka, and Jason Chandler. So amazing support, Morph, that we've gotten since we started the Patreon and... It goes a long way towards helping us keep putting out this content. We definitely really appreciate all your support, and we're looking forward to bringing you some really good Patreon material to go along with your support. So if you want to help support the show financially, all you have to do is go to patreon.com slash criminology. And we're very excited by the response we've had about season one of criminology being turned into a book, book format about the Zodiac case. A lot of people have told us they were very excited about it, and they've pre-ordered already. So if you're interested in picking a copy up of our book, Criminology True Crime Podcast Presents the Case of the Zodiac Killer, you can do so by going to wildbluepress.com backslash Zodiac Preorders. Again, that's wildbluepress.com backslash Zodiac Preorders. And don't forget about CrimeCon. If you're thinking about going... Make that decision. You will not regret it. And if you do, if you're going to sign up online, make sure you use our promo code CRIMINOLOGY to get 10% off your standard badge. All right, Morph. In the last episode, we left off with the brutal attack on a 32-year-old mother and her 10-year-old son on Kipling Drive in Carmichael. The mother was repeatedly raped while her son was tied up to a bed in another room. This attack happened in the early morning hours of October 18, 1976, and it turned out that this vicious rapist did not stop with this one attack because later on that same day, he attempts another attack, this time back in the town of Rancho Cordova. This second attack would come later on that night after 11 p.m. on the 10,200 block of Los Palos Drive in Rancho Cordova. And once again, this is very close to the previous Rancho Cordova attacks. Just after 11 p.m., a 19-year-old woman pulled her car into her driveway after coming home from work from her job at the Sacramento Army Depot. She put the car in park and then turned to look in the back seat at her dog who had gone for a ride with her. She opened the door, and without any warning, she felt hands on her trying to rip her from the driver's seat. 
terrified, she turned to see a man with what looked like a large gray sock on his face with only eye holes in it. As the masked man tried pulling her out, this young woman instinctively went into fight mode and she began to struggle with this guy. But he pulled out a knife and put it against her throat close enough that it cut her. The assailant then hissed through clenched teeth, stop fighting, I only want your car. At this point, the 19-year-old woman was at a severe disadvantage and stopped struggling. It was then that he warned her not to make a move or he would kill her. She then stayed perfectly still. He ordered the young woman out of the car. The attacker walked the woman to the side of her house where there wasn't much light and threw her down on the ground. He then tied her hands tightly behind her back with clothesline from her yard. He then asked her if she had any money. At this point, she started to struggle, and he told her that he would cut her up if she didn't calm down. She replied to him by telling him that she only had a dollar. She told him that the dollar was in her wallet, but he quickly told her to shut up. Like, he didn't want to hear anything about the money. The man started to rummage through her purse, which had fallen on the ground. He dragged the helpless girl over towards her car, and it was then that she could see her dog watching this whole situation unfold from the back seat. The man started to enter the car, and she cried out, please don't hurt my dog. And you have to picture this situation. This woman is tied up. She's being attacked, but she's also very concerned about her dog. Luckily, Mike, he told her he wasn't going to hurt the dog. Instead, he rifled through the contents inside her car. After he didn't find anything in the car, he hoisted the helpless 19-year-old off the ground and forced her to walk out of her yard and past the neighbor's yard. He walked her to the street corner. At the corner, there was a yard with an open fence, and the house there appeared to be empty with no lights on. Once they were in the yard and out of sight from the street, he threw her on the ground where she noticed several strips of cut-up towels had been placed. She's still tied with her hands behind her back at this point, but then he decided that he wanted to tie her ankles as well. So he sat down the knife he was holding and he pulled out a strip of white cord. He used one of the towel strips to act as a blindfold and he also stuffed a piece of it into her mouth to act as a gag. She started to struggle and her assailant told her to shut up and poked her rib area with a knife. At this point, something weird happened. He stood up over the bound victim and shook her car keys over her head. He told her he was going to leave for five minutes, but if she moved, he would catch her and cut her guts out. He quietly walked off, and then a moment or two later, she heard her car start up. The assailant backed the car out of the driveway and drove off. And of course, she didn't waste any time here. She quickly worked her bindings off, removed the blindfold and gag, and raced off to go get help. So, Morph, we have to look at this attack compared to the others. We have a masked man who's talking through clenched teeth. He has strips of towel. Some of the threats that he makes are very similar to the threats in some of the earlier attacks, but the strange thing here is he lets this woman go without any type of sexual contact yeah mike he clearly had her bound and controlled and could have pulled her inside to a home to assault her or he could have assaulted her on the ground in the yard but for some unknown reason he didn't a few hours later police located her car on el segundo drive 
just over a quarter mile away. El Segundo Drive was where the sixth victim had been attacked just over a week earlier. The dog was locked in the trunk, but it was unharmed. In some of the previous attacks we've discussed, there were instances when the victims had been forced out into their yards, but there wasn't a time like this when they were ordered to walk a couple houses away. So this was a bit different in that regard. Once the police got to the scene, they were anxious to talk to the victim to see what details she could share about her attacker. She told them that the man who attacked her was about six foot tall and perhaps 170 pounds. She recounted details of his mask, his gloves, and most importantly, how he talked through clenched teeth. Now, based on the MO and the location, it was pretty obvious that the assailant in this case was the same man who had attacked the other women before this. And we have to consider where this attack happened was very close to the area of Dawes and Dolcetto, which we previously mentioned as being the spot of several dog beatings, burglaries, and sexual assaults. And these instances dated back two to three years prior to this. And there's no doubt that compared to some of the other victims, this 19-year-old was extremely lucky. Because although she was assaulted and terrorized, she was not raped. Despite this victim not being raped, the terror for her didn't end the night of her attack. Over a year later, in December of 1977, she would get a threatening phone call. And she was sure that the caller was the same man that had attacked her. And this is just a very short time before victim number one received her horrible phone calls. One of which we played in episode one. The first victim received her call on January 2nd, 1978. Police were convinced that all of these attacks were committed by one person, the East Area Rapist. And they felt that the phone calls to the victims had also been made by this person. Now, after the phone call to the first victim was recorded, and this was what we played, the gonna kill you call, police played it for this latest victim. And there was no doubt in her mind. The voice that she was hearing on this recorded phone call was her attacker. Police were definitely worried at this point. They knew that they had a big problem, a serial rapist on their hands in Sacramento County. But they were especially worried because the attacks were coming so close together. It seemed every day in the paper there was another rape. And that was Jane Carson Sandler again. And you can really hear from her how the community was viewing these attacks. People were extremely worried. And finally, the police had to step in and address the situation. Sheriff's detectives have disclosed an extensive hunt has been underway for a man who attacked and raped eight women in the past year in areas of East Sacramento. Inspector Richard Shelby said the same man is believed to have raped four women in Rancho Cordova, two in Del Deo, and two in the Crestview area. He said the first case occurred in October last year, he said the man did not strike again until June. Four of the attacks were last month. Shelby said the man also is believed to be responsible for a case in which a woman was molested and another in which a rape attempt was thwarted. The sheriff's department has requested the rape case be included in the Bee's secret witness program. A reward of $2,500 is offered for information leading to the arrest and conviction of the rapist. Informants need not identify themselves. They are asked to telephone the private secret witness number, 442-6221. 
or write using instructions published on Wednesdays. Sheriff's officials previously had asked the news media to hold back on reporting the case, saying publicity would ruin any stakeouts aimed at capturing the rapist. But the series of rapes came to light Wednesday at a Del Deo Parents Club meeting at Del Deo School. The meeting conducted by deputies was to have been on crime prevention in general, but the series of rapes was disclosed after questions about rumored rapes from some of the 500 persons attending. Shelby said the suspect is white, has a pale complexion, may be between 5 feet 8 inches to 6 feet tall, of a medium build, 25 to 35 years old, and has dark hair, which hangs over his ears to his collar. The attacks have been committed between 11 p.m. and 6.45 a.m. He frequently commits repeat attacks on individual victims over a period of three hours. He has entered the homes through a window. Investigators describe him as a, quote, cat burglar type who finds out if a husband is home. He has worn a mask, but descriptions are vague as to what kind. He has worn military-type boots and black tennis shoes. His weapons have included a revolver, knife, a stick, and a club. He has cut and beat his victims, but none severely. The newspaper article you just heard read aloud was published in the November 5th edition of the Sacramento Bee. Now, what's interesting is that they mentioned these attacks started back in October of 1975. So while the East Area Rapist attacks officially started with the June 1976 attack on Paseo Drive in Rancho Cordova, police were now considering the rapes of the mother and daughters near Dawes and DeSeto that we discussed in episode one as the first rapes in this series. And you have to wonder, when did this guy get started? You know, how long was he committing these kinds of attacks? And were they all in the same area? If the first official victim was in June of 1976, but authorities felt that these October 75 attacks were committed by the East Area Rapists, you have to question as to whether they're were other victims in between that have not been identified. So a couple of weeks went by. In this last attack, the East Area Rapist unexpectedly drove off and the victim had escaped relatively unscathed. It was now November 1976 and residents of Eastern Sacramento County were on high alert. On the 6600 block of Greenleaf Drive and Citrus Heights, about a mile from where Jane was attacked, a family was dealing with a dilemma. It was November 10th, and they wanted to go visit their son who was in the hospital, but they didn't know if they should leave their 16-year-old daughter alone at home. But they finally decided to let her stay home while they went to visit their son. They left for the hospital at about 7 p.m. This 16-year-old girl was a student at San Juan High School, and after her parents left, she sat on the couch watching television in the den. It wasn't long before she was startled by a loud bang. It sounded as if it had come from someplace in the house. She paused for a second to try and pinpoint where the noise had come from, and out of nowhere, a masked man charged into the room. The 16-year-old girl became immediately scared, and she started screaming. At that point, her dog also started barking loudly. The masked man wasted no time in blurting out a demand to her speaking through clenched teeth. He said, shut up or I'll kill you. The man then kicked her dog and told the girl to shut it up or he would stab it. This masked attacker was very close to her, close enough to have what she would later describe as really awful breath and a very strong odor emanating from his body. The masked intruder told the young girl 
that he just wanted money. He forced the 16-year-old off the couch and then pulled out black shoelaces. He used the shoelaces to tie the girl's hands tightly behind her back. Once he had the girl secured, he forced her to walk out of the house and into the backyard where he forced her down on the ground. While she was on the ground, she was next to her bike and she saw several black shoelaces hanging from the handlebars. He would use these shoelaces to bind her feet. At this point, he warned her, don't move or you'll be dead and I'll be gone into the night. While the girl stayed helplessly on the ground, fearing for her life, the man walked in and out of the house, returning every couple of minutes. After doing this several times, she saw him come back out. He put the living room window screen, which had been his point of entry, back onto the window. He asked her where her money was and then asked her if her parents had any, but she told him that they had their money with them. His response at that point was sort of, oh, geez, no money. But it didn't sound like he really was upset by the fact she didn't have any money. He went into the house one last time, and on the way out, he locked the door behind him. It was then that this man made his intentions clear to the young girl. The masked intruder hissed through clenched teeth, do you like to fuck? She ignored him, and he started to say things that were very sexual in nature to her. Suddenly, he grabbed her legs and untied her feet. He pulled her up and then forced her to walk to a canal area that was located behind her street. Once they were down in the canal area, he forced the girl to walk in the very shallow water at the bottom of the canal. And we talked about this in an earlier episode. There was a big drought in California going on. So it was probably much drier and much more shallow than it would normally have been. As he moved her along the canal, nearby dogs started to bark. She started to plead with her attacker, begging for him to let her go. But once again, he told her to shut up and that if she didn't, he would silence her forever and he would be gone in the night. The man brought her to the base of a large weeping willow tree and told her to sit down. He then tied her ankles. Once the man had the girl's ankles tied, he walked away for a short distance. He then returned a moment later, only to once again untie her ankles. He repeated this untying and then retying her ankles and walked away. And this is some pretty odd behavior on the attacker's part. It's hard to know if he was nervous or just not thinking straight, but to constantly be tying and untying her ankles just seems a bit off. When the man came back again, he showed the girl his knife and then once again untied her. So this went on for minutes, repeating the same steps, almost as if he was building up to something. Finally, he made a blindfold from some sort of material, but when he put it on her, she could partially see around the material and she watched him walking back and forth as if he was trying to think. Even during the times where she could not see him through the blindfold, she could sense how close this man was to her because of how awful he smelled. He started cutting at her jeans, removing them in pieces with his knife. But he seemed to have problems getting her pants all the way off and at one point even said, this isn't working right. Finally, he got her pants and underwear off so that she was naked from the waist down. And this is where the attacker's behavior would become even more bizarre. And this really was bizarre behavior because he started making small talk with her. 
He asked her if he knew her from somewhere. She said no. Then he asked her if she went to American River College. The 16-year-old again answered no. He held the knife to her throat, and she blurted out that she went to San Juan High School. Then he said, you're lying. What's your name? She answered, but she didn't give her real name. The hooded man then became very nervous. It does seem more of like at this point in time, he is nervous. He started pacing back and forth. Then he told her that he needed to wait for his parents to leave so that he could go home. He said to the girl that he was going to take off in his car, but he warned her again that if she made a sound in the next 20 minutes, he would silence her forever and he would be gone in the dark. The man walked off into the darkness and this 16-year-old girl was there left alone. So you have to think at this point, she's relieved that he's gone, but still very scared that he might come back. You're right, Mike. She was scared. In fact, she was so scared that she waited almost an hour in the same spot before trying to get away. During the time she waited, she got her ankles untied and got the blindfold off. But the bindings on her wrist were very tight and she couldn't get them off. Finally, after what must have seemed like an eternity, she climbed out of from the ditch and started towards her house. Luckily, she saw a neighbor and ran to him. The neighbor was able to get her wrist bindings off. And from his house, they called her house to see if her parents were home yet. And it turned out they had gotten home at 8.30 p.m. Once police arrived at the family's home, they started to piece together the events of that night. Starting from the time that the family left their 16-year-old daughter. The authorities knew she was attacked soon after the family left for the hospital. The attacker had come in through a screen. But like we mentioned, he had put the screen back on the window for some reason. Authorities figured out that while the 16-year-old was bound outside of her house, her attacker had gone back in and locked up and turned things off to make it look like she had simply gone out. In fact, when her parents returned home and she was gone, that's exactly what they thought happened. The frightened 16-year-old was able to give the police a pretty good description of her attacker. She told them that he was white with a light complexion. She thought he was possibly 18 to 23 years old, and he stood about 5 foot 10 and weighed about 165 pounds. She also thought he had brown hair. His hood was made of leather and had slits for the eyes and mouth. She was also able to see that he wore black square-toed shoes. He wore military-style clothing or fatigues, and she stressed how bad this man smelled, both his breath and his body odor, which really stood out to her. She told police that when she first saw the man in her house, he had a knife. When he brought her outside, he threatened her with what she thought was possibly a different knife, similar to the ones in her kitchen. She stated that he had a flashlight, and then she also recounted for police the shoelaces that she had seen hanging neatly from her bicycle. She pointed out that for certain things, he used his left hand. But for others, he used his right. And this girl was definitely able to tell police about some of his very odd behavior. You know, the pacing, the indecision, the untying and the retying of the shoes. I mean, some of this stuff was very strange. The small talk. 
And not just that, Mike, but even how he seemed to be nervous when he asked her what her name was and if she went to college at American River. One possible theory is that he actually targeted a different victim and wound up attacking this young girl by mistake. It turned out a female neighbor of the 16-year-old girl did, in fact, go to American River College. It seems that when we consider everything that happened in the attack, that this was definitely the East Area Rapist. The MO seemed to match. The method of entering and blitz attack was similar, and the choice of a victim in a single-story home all matched up. But if this was indeed the Easter rapist that had attacked the 16-year-old, it was the second attack in a row in which he didn't sexually assault his victim. Over the next month, police were on high alert for another East Area rapist attack, but it didn't come. Things were quiet. Towards the middle of December 1976, there was one suspicious incident on Galewood Way in the town of Carmichael. A man entered a woman's house while she was on the phone, but before the startled woman even really knew what was going on, the man turned around and left. Around this same time, residents on the 4600 block of Ladera Way were dealing with hang-up phone calls. One home had received a few calls over a one-week period, but another home had been getting these calls for weeks. They usually occurred three or four times a day. The couple that had received these calls three or four times a day went to a Christmas party on December 18th, leaving their 15-year-old daughter home alone. Her parents left at about 6.15 p.m. She put some food in the oven and then sat down to play her piano while she waited for it to cook. She hadn't been playing the piano long when she heard a loud crashing noise from outside. She stopped playing to listen, but it was quiet. And she started to play once again. But suddenly, without warning, she felt a knife at her throat. And I think we've talked about this before, Morph, but this almost sounds like it's straight out of a horror movie. Someone hears a noise, but they can't figure out what it is or where it's coming from. Well, the same thing happened here, but this was no movie. Suddenly, the girl heard a voice whisper, make a move and I'll kill you. Feeling the man's breath on her, the young girl sat frozen in place at the piano. He hissed to her, asking her if she had any money. She sat still and answered no. Then the man asked her when her parents would be back. He told her that he needed to know so he would know how much time he had. She responded by saying she didn't know. At that moment, she heard the man say, get up. If you say anything, I will push this knife all the way in and I will be gone in the dark. Once she stood up from the piano, she was able to get a look at the man who had the knife at her throat. He was wearing a dark red ski mask. He must have sensed that she was afraid because he said to her, you'll be okay, I won't hurt you. He added that he was going to tie her up to a post in the backyard, but warned her that if she tried to look at him, he would kill her. The masked man forced her to walk out through her garage and into the backyard, at which point he pulled a white shoelace out of his pocket. He tied her hands behind her back, and then he tied her to a post in the backyard that was next to a picnic table. He pushed her onto the table and then tied her ankles together. He then pulled out a cloth and started to stuff it into her mouth to gag her, but she became resistant, and he reminded her that if she didn't comply, he would kill her. She believed the man and then cooperated. After she was gagged, he also blindfolded her with a piece of cloth. 
He had this 15-year-old girl's ankles tied together, her hands tied together. She's gagged, tied to a post. He has her totally immobilized. There's nothing she can do. He told her that he would be checking on her every 10 seconds, and she heard him walk into the house. But the door that he went into was not the same door they had come out of. Instead of walking into the garage area door, he had walked into a door leading into the family room. While she was tied helplessly to the post, she could hear the man rifling through drawers and cabinets in the kitchen. It sounded like he was putting things into paper bags. It wasn't long before she heard him walk back out of the house towards her, and suddenly he was at her side very close. At that point, he asked, have you ever fucked a guy? This girl had to be scared to death, but she was able to answer him and said no. He became very stern with her and told her she had better not be lying or he would kill her. Then he asked her if she had ever felt a guy's dick and told her that she wanted her to play with his. This man placed his penis into her bound hands and hissed at her through clenched teeth, play with it. He did this for a few moments and then suddenly pulled her to her feet. He quickly pulled down her pants and fondled her, cutting her bra with the knife that he was holding. The masked man untied her from the post and ordered her back into the house. Once inside, the man took her to the master bedroom and sexually assaulted her. After a short time, he brought her into the family room and sexually assaulted her again there. He left her there and wandered around the home for a couple minutes and then came back and raped her a third time. And Morph, these are very tough details to go through. I mean, this is happening to a 15-year-old girl, a, a child. This should never happen to anyone, let alone someone so young. After this third sexual attack, he walked her outside to the picnic table and tied her to it. And after she was tied to the picnic table, he left and it was over. She waited a few minutes to make sure that he was gone, and then she was able to get her bindings off and race into the house to call her neighbor for help. Thankfully, they were home, and they immediately rushed to her aid. They also contacted the police. Police got to the house about the same time that her parents came home. She gave a statement detailing her ordeal before being taken away to the Sacramento Medical Center. The 15-year-old Del Campo High High School student had given police as many details as she could remember. She described the rapist as being about six foot tall with a regular build, and she noted something very specific, and that was that this man had a very small penis, something that we've referred to multiple times so far in this case. One of the things that she recounted for police was something that the man had told her during the course of the attack, and the words that he said to her were, quote, I have seen you at school before, and you sure look good. Police turned their focus to the outside of the home. It was there that they found that a part of the fence had been kicked down, which was likely the loud crash she had heard just before she first encountered her attacker. They also found some of the girl's clothing discarded in the next-door neighbor's yard. Some other interesting things they found scattered in the yard were a shoestring hanging from a tree, and they later discovered that the shoestring had been removed from shoes belonging to the victim's sister. So at some point prior to the attack, the man had been in the house long enough to take the shoelace. 
One of the most important items found at the crime scene was a bloody Band-Aid that was found close to the picnic table. Police knew it wasn't from the victim, so they assumed it belonged to her attacker. But this is 1976. Authorities can't get DNA at this point from a bloody Band-Aid. But what they could get was the attacker's blood type. And we had talked, Mike, about this rapist being a non-secretor in a previous episode. And again, that simply meant that his blood type could not be determined from his semen. Right, but now they actually have his blood. And later tests would reveal that this man's blood type was A positive. The parents of this 15-year-old went carefully looking through their belongings to see if they could ID things that had been taken by the masked assailant. And they were able to determine that he had taken jewelry, a BB gun pistol, and most oddly, a bottle of hand lotion. And this is all part of the pattern of the East Area Rapist. The MO and the descriptions fit. So there was little doubt that this latest attack was him. And another thing that we continue to see with this latest attack is that it's not just the victim that received phone calls prior to the attack. This is another instance where nearby neighbors also receive phone calls. So it does seem as if this guy got off in some form or fashion by targeting residents in certain sections of neighborhoods. And that really is something different too, I think, Mike. It's not unreasonable to think that a rapist or stalker would call his victims prior to an attack, but how common is it that this kind of predator would target some of the neighbors too? So I think you're right. He did get off on causing fear, but it wasn't just in the victims that he attacked. And as we move along further in the series, it will continue to be a trend. So what had seemed like a break from the East Area Rapist was over after this December 18th attack. But only two days later, a woman would have a frightening encounter, which led police to believe that the rapist was back and active again. In the early morning hours of December 20th, 1976, a woman came to a stop sign at the intersection of Oak Crest and Dewey in the town of Carmichael. This intersection was about a mile away from the attack that occurred two nights before. As the woman looked around to make sure that it was safe to proceed, she saw something that chilled her blood. She saw a man dressed in dark clothing and a ski mask crawling on his hands and knees towards the front door of a residence. She had no intention of trying to investigate further and wanted to get out of there. She looked one more time to the right before she drove out into the intersection. And after she did, she snapped her head around only to find that the masked man she had seen crawling in the yard was now standing next to her window. And you can only imagine how terrified this woman was. Think about that shot of adrenaline you get when you are suddenly startled. The pair stared at each other for a few seconds and then the man knocked on her window. The woman punched the gas pedal and was across the intersection very quickly. But once she got through that intersection, she slowed down to glance into her rearview mirror. And it's at this point that she sees this man reaching into some bushes and she watched him take out a bike and jump on it. The first thought that would come to most people's mind is that the guy knows he's been spotted and he wants to make his getaway. 
Yeah, more if you would think that, but not this guy because he started racing towards her. She punches the car again and she's not looking back this time. She leaves this guy in the dust. She was terrified by this incident, but didn't want to go to police. And it's not until a week later that she finally decided to report what had happened to her. There were no attacks reported on that date. So perhaps if that man was the East Area rapist, she had interrupted an attack. And at the very least, whoever it was that was crawling around, we could say for sure that guy was up to no good. The last part of December 1976 seemed to pass by relatively quietly. Both the Sacramento County Sheriff's Department as well as county residents hoped that the East Area Rapist would vanish along with the 1976 calendar year. But it turned out that wasn't going to be the case. The East Area Rapist wasn't going anywhere. In fact, it would soon become apparent that he had stayed busy right up until the year's end. Not long after 11 p.m. on the night of January 18, 1977, a 25-year-old woman on Glenville Circle in Sacramento awoke from her sleep to find a bright light shining in her eyes. She yelled out, who's there? She knew it wasn't her husband because he was away on business. From behind the glare of the light, a voice whispered, be quiet, I won't hurt you. All I want is your money, and then I'll be gone. So this woman was just waking up from a deep sleep. Her husband's not home, and there's an intruder standing there. This has to seem like a bad dream to her, but it wasn't a dream. The man was already alongside her, and he started to bind her hands behind her back with pieces of electrical cord. He then blindfolded the helpless woman with a bandana. She blurted out to him that she was five months pregnant, but the intruder seemed unaware she was even speaking. He then placed a pair of panties over her head to keep her bandana in place. His only response to all of this was to tell her that she had better shut up or he would slash or cut her. Bound and blindfolded, there was nothing she could do. The man walked off and was gone for a couple of minutes. Then he walked back into the room and stood very close to her. She heard a popping sound. The intruder asked her what she thought that sound was, but she had no idea. He warned her that she had better guess. She guessed and told the intruder that it sounded like he was shaking a can of spray paint. He told her that was the wrong answer and to keep guessing. But this time his voice was angrier. She made a couple of guesses just to keep him calm. It took her only a moment to realize that the sound she was hearing was of the man masturbating with the aid of some sort of lubricant. All right, Morph, we've got to stop here for a second and talk about the sick and twisted man that is making this woman guess what he's doing as he's masturbating next to her. I mean, when you stop and think about it, how messed up is this guy? And it's at the point that this woman realizes what he was doing, that he placed his penis into her bound hands and told her to massage it. After a moment, the man turned the helpless woman onto her back, and although she was blindfolded, she knew there was something in front of her face. It turns out the man had his penis in front of her and he forced her to orally copulate him. And as he forced her to do this, he warned her through clenched teeth that he would kill her if she bit him. Then this twisted intruder told the victim to put her legs up around his back like she did with her husband. 
It was then that he raped her. After a few minutes, the man climbed off of the woman and walked out of the room. She could hear him ransacking her home. This went on for close to four hours. At some point during this four-hour period, he came back into the room and raped her again. After this occurred, he asked her where she kept her car keys. After a while, this woman could no longer hear the sound of the man going through her house. It was then that she heard the garage door opening, followed by the sound of a car starting up. Her attacker was gone. The 25-year-old woman struggled to get her feet free and then ran out of the house to a neighbor's and alerted them. They called police and an ambulance. Police arrived on the scene, and this time they knew what they were walking into. And even though the East Area Rapist had never before struck in the city of Sacramento, authorities all over Sacramento County were on edge that any sexual attack was going to be his handiwork. And this was another single-story home on a quiet street with no man in the home at the time. Very typical of the East Area Rapist's M.O. The victim's description further backed up their suspicions. 5 foot 11, 180 pounds, and a ski mask. A flashlight that the rapist held with his left hand and a knife in the other hand. Then there was the talking through clenched teeth. Although they were pretty sure they knew who was responsible, they investigated the scene fully. The police first noticed the extreme disarray that the house was in. It seemed as if this burglar and rapist had searched every inch of the home. They were able to determine that the point of entry was a window on the back side of the house. The intruder had made a hole in the sliding glass and removed a dowel rod, allowing him to open it all the way and climb in. The victim's car was missing. It seemed that when she heard the car start up after her attack, the car that she heard was her own. The fact that the man asked her for keys now made sense. Her car would be found later that day at around 5 p.m. on Great Falls Way, not quite two miles from her home. The car was found to be locked up and the keys were missing. Investigators found a tennis shoe track close to the car that they felt belonged to the man who had raped the 25-year-old and then driven her car away from her home. One odd thing that investigators discovered was that a photo of the victim and her husband had been removed from a frame and the portion that included the victim had been cut out and was missing. This was reminiscent of something Richard Shelby had come across while investigating the East Area Rapist series. Carol Daly and I got the phone call. They found a, a white envelope full of driver's license photos of women. They were all in their 20s. They were all pretty and there's nothing else on it. They looked to me like somebody had cut the driver's license photos out. And we got that and really had nowhere to go with it. Exactly what it looked like. Did somebody stand with a razor knife and cut out the photograph? It was the questioning of neighbors that really raised some red flags for investigators. And it allowed them to learn just how much suspicious activity there was in the area prior to the attack. Police learned that one nearby neighbor had been robbed about a month earlier. Another neighbor reported that around that same time, an unknown man walked out of his backyard. When the homeowner asked the stranger what he was doing, the man responded by telling the homeowner that he was taking a shortcut. Next, police learned that the same man whose home was burglarized in mid-December had also caught a man peering into a window of a nearby house 
on January 11th, a week before the Glenville Circle rape. The neighbor loudly coughed to let the peeper know he had been witnessed. The unknown man turned around and calmly walked north on Glenville Circle. He was described as being about six foot to six foot one. He was white in his late 20s with a medium build and dark hair. And just the next day, January 12th, a female neighbor walked out onto her front porch and saw a man in her front yard. The man took off running. He was described as being in his 20s, about five foot seven to five foot eight. The next day, this woman walked out onto her porch and discovered that someone had removed the light bulb from her porch light. On January 17th, the night before the rape occurred, multiple neighbors had seen a dark blue sedan parked on Glenville Circle, which none of them recognized. Earlier on the night of the Glenville Circle attack at about 8.30 p.m., a dog at a nearby home started to bark repeatedly. The dog's owner looked out the window just in time to see a man walking through her side gate and into her backyard. She raced into her garage to make sure that the doors were locked. Then she ran back into the house and looked out a different window to see if she could see the man. When she looked out of her window, she was standing face to face with the man who had cut through her yard. He was looking into her house. He immediately turned and ran off, jumping over her back fence. And this is a point where there's a major missed opportunity. This woman immediately called police to tell them about the prowler. But since he had taken off, they didn't think it was a big deal. She described the man as a white male, about 35 years old, 5 foot 11, 175 pounds, with a small waist but broad shoulders. The man had a neatly styled and combed hairstyle. And she went on to state that he was very athletic looking and agile based on how easily he jumped over her fence. In the days after the rape of the woman on Glenville Circle, this woman who had seen the prowler in her yard was asked to go to the police station and view various photos of men that resembled the man she saw. She picked out a handful of photos that resembled the man, but none that she was confident was actually him. So, Mike, we have to talk about all this activity going on around Glenville Circle from mid-December until January 18th, the night of the attack. You know, we've got mystery cars, multiple unknown men prowling through the area, and they're described as different heights, different ages. Now, Glenville Circle is just that, a circle. It had about six homes on it, but that circle was wrapped around by another circle called Moss Glen Circle. So this area was essentially a circle within a circle. Many of the homes in the area were only about six or seven years old at the time. So this was an area of newer homes. And this is a lot of activity for such a small area. Yeah, Morph, I think you hit the nail on the head. And let's not forget the burglary there as well that occurred during that stretch. We'll never know what, if anything, police would have found had they come out and checked out the prowling call. I mean, who knows? Maybe their presence in the area may have prevented the rape of this victim on January 18th. But this latest attack would lead to local police coordinating a meeting to come up with a game plan to try and stop the East Area Rapist. And this January 20th, 1977 Sacramento Bee article detailed the level of concern and tried to share advice on how women could protect themselves. 
City police and sheriff's detectives scheduled a meeting today to coordinate their search for the so-called East Side Rapist, believed to be responsible for attacks on 11 Sacramento women in the past year. The latest attack occurred early yesterday at the Glenbrook area of the city. The others were in the residential areas in the county adjacent to Glenbrook. The latest victim was a pregnant 25-year-old housewife who was attacked at about 4 a.m. by a man who broke a window to gain entrance to her home. Her husband was not home at the time. The rapist, armed with a pistol and wearing a mask, tied the woman before raping her. The attack was similar to others by a man authorities call the East Side Rapist. Following the latest attack, the rapist escaped in his victim's car. The auto was found about 12 hours later, one mile away in a residential neighborhood. The rapist is described as white, 5 foot 11, 185 pounds, wearing dark clothing, a ski mask, and leather gloves. According to authorities, the East Area Rapist has attacked his victims between the hours of 11 p.m. and 6.45 a.m. There have been no men in the houses at the time, although sometimes there have been children, indicating the houses have been watched. In most cases, the man entered the house through unlocked windows. He wears a mask and blindfolds his victims, making it difficult to get a good description of him. And sometimes he has been armed. Some rape prevention tactics are have secure locks on your doors and windows and use them. Make sure windows are well covered to prevent someone outside from seeing you are alone. Install burglar alarms. Form a cooperative with your neighbors to keep an eye on each other's houses and for unfamiliar persons in cars. Pay attention to your dog if it barks. When leaving a building, carry your car keys in your hand so that you can rake them across the attacker's face. Check the back seat of your car before getting in. Carry a few sharp items in your purse, such as pencils or combs, with metal lifts that can be used as weapons. Kick your attacker in a vulnerable place, the shin or groin, and run. Cause a lot of noise, either with a whistle or a horn, and run. Don't keep a weapon in your home unless you know how to use it. There were a lot of good tips in that article, but most of those tips were useless if you were awakened from your sleep with a flashlight in your eyes. And on top of that, it seemed like the East Area Rapists could strike any place at any time. On or around the date this article ran, some young boys on Primrose Drive in Citrus Heights saw a suspicious man in a dark car. They had seen him parked in the same spot a couple of days in a row, and they were curious, so they tried to get a look at him. But the man looked down and away from them as they looked into his car. And although the boys found this unusual, it wasn't something that caused them to you know, run to an adult and mention. On the night of January 22nd, 1977, on Farmgate Way, just a short distance, one-tenth of a mile from where the boys had seen this car, a resident had noticed a man walking through the front yards of some of her neighbors. He seemed to be creeping. She tried to watch him to see what he was up to, but somehow it seemed as if he knew she was there and turned around looking directly at her. She was about 20 feet away, and light from an overhead floodlight brightly lit up his face. They stared at each other for several seconds, but the woman got nervous and went inside of her house. She came out a few minutes later, but she didn't see the man. However, she did see a man on the corner where her street intersected with Primrose Drive. She couldn't be sure if this was the same man she had just seen. Later, she would describe the man she saw as being about six foot tall and weighing about 175 pounds. A couple of nights later, on January 24, 1977, shortly after midnight, this same woman could hear her dogs in the backyard starting to carry on and making a lot of noise. 
just a few homes over on the 5800 block of Primrose Drive, a 25-year-old accountant was settling down for the night after hosting a small party. The recently separated woman was in bed by midnight. She had only been asleep for a short time when around 1 a.m. something woke her from her sleep. As soon as her eyes opened, she could tell that someone was holding her shoulder tightly. She screamed and tried to pull away. From the darkness, a voice hissed, If you scream again, I'll kill you. He then held something sharp to her throat. She quieted down and the intruder made her roll over onto her stomach. He then tied her hands tightly behind her back with rope. He blindfolded her, gagged her, and then tied her feet together. The intruder had gained control of her very quickly. And while she was lying there, unable to see her move, she could smell him, smell his foul body odor that smelled like stale sweat. He then told her not to make a sound or else he would use what he referred to as an eight-inch ice pick on her. He whispered that he only wanted her money and wasn't going to hurt her. And most horrifying of all is that he addressed her by name. Then he asked her where her purse was. She told the man where he could find it, and he got up and left the room, but quickly returned after finding it and said, this can't be all there is, referring to the money that she had in it. The woman could hear the popping sound of a cap, and then she could hear the sound of this man masturbating with some kind of lubricant. It was then that he spoke out through clenched teeth, do you know what I'm doing? And we know that this is the M.O., of the East Area Rapist. And just like in the attack before this one, he was making the victim guess that he was masturbating. So we know that the East Area Rapist got some sort of sick pleasure out of a number of things that he did as part of his MO. This is more, at least the second time that he had made a victim guess what he was doing. And we've talked about another part of his MO a number of times, and that is placing his penis into the victim's bound hands and telling them to play with it. And this is exactly what the East Area Rapist does next. It was then that the man raped her. He would tie and retie her bound feet multiple times, raping her and taking breaks in between to go wander around the house. During one of his trips, the victim heard the rapist go into a refrigerator and open a beer. During these attacks, he would start some different conversations with her. He asked her if she knew him, and when she said she didn't, he replied by saying to her that it must have been too long ago for her to remember. Then he told her that even though she didn't know him, that he knew her. Now, this attack lasted about 90 minutes, and after it was over, he removed the bindings and retied her with a bra. Then he picked up the original bindings so that he could take them with him. He walked out of the room and out of her house. The victim waited a while until she was sure the man was gone. Then she started to try and wiggle free from the bra she was bound with, but she couldn't get free. Still blindfolded, she hopped off the bed and worked her way over to a phone. And somehow she was able to call the police. The police arrived at the single-story home pretty quickly and started assessing the crime scene. Inside the home, they found the now-familiar signs of a house that had been gone through extensively. 
They found that the phone cord in the family room had been cut. The point of entry into the home was likely either the garage door or a sliding glass door. Both had been pried. In the kitchen, the police found a partially eaten block of cheese with teeth marks in it and two empty beer cans. The search outside revealed various shoe prints of all sorts in both the victim's yard and in the neighbor's. The victim's fence had been left open and on her lawn sat a sign advertising her house for sale. When they questioned the victim about her assailant, she described him as being white in his 20s and of a medium build. Of course, one physical feature she mentioned was a very small and very thin penis. Police already were sure who they were dealing with, and this information just confirmed it. One interesting thing in the report, or perhaps I should say that is not in the report, is the mention of a ski mask. It's not indicated any place, so we don't know if he wore a ski mask or if it was just omitted in the report. On January 27, 1977, the neighbor who had seen the unknown man near her yard and whose dogs had acted crazy on the night of the attack found several Marlboro cigarette butts outside of her living room window. On the very next day, January 28th, This same woman was standing outside of her home when she spotted a man jogging down the street. He seemed very out of place, like he really wasn't a jogger. In her mind, he looked like the strange man she had spotted near her yard. And this woman was actually able to follow this man and got his license plate. But when authorities looked into it, the plate came back to a neighborhood man who happened to be Asian. So he was ruled out pretty quickly. On this same day, not far away on Juarez Way, a resident spotted a man prowling near a new home construction that was up for sale. She made eye contact with the man and immediately called police, at which point the man ran off. The best description that she could give was that he was white and about five foot eight. So in and around the immediate area of the most recent attack, we have some familiar things going on. Prowling homes for sale, and just several incidents of things that seemed unusual. Just more of the same stuff that was becoming commonplace leading up to and following East Area rapist attacks. After this series of prowling and strangers and the 12th confirmed attack by the East Area rapist, this Citrus Heights neighborhood understandably went into high alert. Back in Carmichael, a town which had already experienced its share of East Area rapist attacks, Residents had remained on high alert since the last attack there. Things, for the most part, had been pretty quiet, but anything out of the ordinary stood out. In mid-January of 1977, an odd incident occurred. A couple had been out for a walk on a quiet day. Suddenly, the sound of racing cars behind them caught their attention. They saw several police cars racing down the street near the intersection of Heathcliff and Crestview. It was at this point, as the cars went out of sight, that they saw something very strange. A man dressed all in black and wearing a ski mask stepped out from behind a bus and walked out into plain view of the couple. He saw them, but ignored them and focused his attention in the area that the police had headed. He had his hands on his hips as if he was winded. The couple knew this was weird, but they walked on, leaving the masked man where he stood. Now, later on, they would describe him as being about five foot nine 
and dressed in dark clothes. But other than that, there really wasn't much more that they could add. Just a week or two earlier, a home very close to the spot on the 6200 block of Heathcliff Drive had been burglarized. It wasn't long after that that the couple that lived there started to receive hang-up phone calls. During the first week of February, several prowling incidents were reported in this neighborhood. But there were no strong leads and no one was arrested. So this couple was living right in the area where all this prowling was going on and their home had been burglarized. You know they had to be worried. And it was at nighttime that most of the prowling and suspicious activity and the East Area rapist attacks had happened. It was the daylight hours that would seem to be when people would get some relief. Because up till now... East Area rapist attacks have been very rare during daylight hours. The exception being Jane, who was the victim of the fifth attack, which occurred around 6.30 a.m. Unfortunately for the 30-year-old housewife and Sacramento State College student, the daylight did not offer her any protection. On February 7, 1977, her husband left for work, leaving his wife and their seven-year-old behind. As he was about to leave, he noticed a white van parked in the area that looked out of place. He told his wife to make sure everything was locked up. And more, if this is what any husband would do, you see something unusual and then you let your wife know about it so that she can take the necessary precautions to make sure she's safe. It may be nothing, but you do it just in case. And his wife listened to him and went around the home checking all of the locks and windows, even locking the deadbolts. She had checked every door and window except for one. And this was the sliding glass door on the back side of the house. And that would turn out to be a very big mistake. As the woman stood at the sink washing dishes, she felt the presence of somebody in the room behind her. As she turned around, she expected to see her six-year-old daughter standing there, but was horrified to see a man in a ski mask holding a knife in one hand and a gun in the other. Through clenched teeth, he warned her not to move. He told her not to scream and that he just wanted her money. The man ordered her to sit down in a chair and told her that he was going to tie her up. Then he said, if you don't do what I say, I'll kill you. At first, this woman was defiant and said no. Then he told her he wanted to tie her to the bed and reminded her he had a gun at which point she cooperated. He pulled out shoelaces and tied her hands tightly in back of her. He then led her down the hallway and past her sleeping daughter's bedroom. When they got to the woman's bedroom, the man raised the knife to the woman's throat and ordered her on the bed, throwing her down face first. Then he tied her ankles. She could hear the sound of cloth or towel-like material being torn. Then her attacker spoke out from underneath the mask, again through clenched teeth, telling her he was going to cover her head. At that point, the scared mother defiantly yelled, get the fuck out of here. The family dog was nearby and the woman ordered the dog to attack the man, but it didn't react. The masked intruder responded by placing his hand over her mouth and telling her to shut up. As he was pressed against her, she could feel the handgun in the front pocket of the jacket he was wearing. And she grabbed at it and pulled it out and was about to squeeze the trigger. But she couldn't even tell which direction the barrel was facing because her hands were tied behind her back. 
And it was this hesitation that allowed the man to realize she had the gun. And he started punching her in the back of her head. At this point, the man knew he had to do something to get her to comply. So he threatened her daughter. He said, shut up or I'll kill your daughter. I'll cut her ear off and bring it to you. As he warned her, he stabbed at the bed very close to the bound woman's head. It was then that she complied, fearing her sleeping daughter would be hurt or even worse. And your heart goes out for this woman. She knows what's going to happen. She's probably aware who's doing this to her from all the news coverage, but she has to protect her daughter. And so she complies. The man gagged and blindfolded her. Then he left the room. But this is when that motherly instinct kicked in. And she began to fear that he had left to go to her daughter's room. So this woman started to struggle and was actually able to remove her ankle bindings. She started to stand up, but suddenly the man was there, pushed her back down, telling her that he would cut a toe off every time she moved. The man started pulling her jeans off and then her shirt. She knew that she was about to be raped. The masked attacker, once again, through clenched teeth, hissed, shut up. He poked the tip of the knife against her stomach. Then he moved back and she could hear him masturbating with some sort of lubricant. As the horrified 30-year-old victim lay there trying to think of her next move, any move, she could smell the strong smell of sweet-smelling aftershave coming from the man. And then, without warning, he was on her and she was sexually assaulted. After the assault, the man wandered out of the room. A few moments later, the woman, still helpless on the bed, was horrified to hear her young daughter's voice. This man had brought her into the room and tied her up with some cords. The young girl started screaming when she saw her mother lying there, and this caused the mother, despite being gagged, to also start to scream. The assailant threw the young girl on the bed, and both her and her mother started screaming. The masked attacker must have felt uneasy because he raced out of the room and ripped out two phone cords to different phones in the house. He raced back into the room and tightly retied the mother's ankles and her wrist as her young daughter laid helplessly on the bed next to her. The house was finally quiet, and soon the mother and daughter realized that the man was gone. They both climbed out of the bed and hopped and scooted as best as they could towards the closest door, which was the back door. They started calling outside to the yard, and a neighbor heard their pleas for help and called police. The police got there quickly and started to investigate. The woman was badly shaken, and her daughter was crying hysterically. The police were finally able to calm the pair down and begin to ask them what had happened. The victim recounted that her husband had mentioned a strange white van parked nearby. As it turned out, it was still in the same spot. And when police walked over to investigate it, they actually found a white male in his 20s sitting in it. He was questioned and later ruled out as having anything to do with the attack. Next, police questioned the victim about her attacker. And everything she told them was familiar. Around 5 foot 11... Weight in the 180-pound range, a man in his 20s talking through clenched teeth. She told authorities about the smell of his aftershave. And you know what comes next. She said that he had an extremely small penis. 
Police quickly determined that the assailant had entered the home through the sliding glass door. The fact that the home had been burglarized a month earlier and had been receiving hang-up calls was just further indication that the East Area Rapist was responsible for this attack. Next, the investigators questioned neighbors and found lots of interesting bits of information. They started with the man who had heard the mother and daughter screaming. He had actually seen a man scaling a fence and going down into a drainage ditch at about 8 a.m. on the morning of the attack. That was right around the time the attacker left the home. The neighbor stated that the man who scaled the fence was young, maybe around 20, thin, white, and about five foot nine. He also told police officers that the day before, he and his wife had encountered a strange man in the park across the street. The man had kept looking at the witness's wife, and every time she looked back, he looked away. Another neighbor reported seeing a man running near the park on the morning of the attack. He appeared to be about five foot nine and in his mid twenties. Other neighbors reported seeing odd men in the area in the day or two before the attack, and generally all of them were described as being thin white men in their twenties and all about five foot nine. On October 26, 1984, over seven years after she was attacked, this victim contacted police to tell them about phone calls she was getting from someone she felt may have been her attacker. In her statement to police, she detailed how she had received at least half a dozen calls over the years. These calls were usually about a year or a year and a half apart. In this latest call she received, a male caller said, Hi, how are you? How are you doing? The victim responded by asking the mail caller who he was. To the question, he replied, This is an old friend. You know me. She hung up on the caller and called police. But as you can imagine, she was unnerved by this call. She's trying to get her life back together after what she went through, only to have these periodic calls over the next several years. It's frustrating to have so many witnesses seeing so many men that fit the description of the East Area Rapist. And it's very possible that perhaps one or more of these sightings was actually of the East Area Rapist. But as frustrating and violent as these attacks were, none of the victims had been seriously wounded. But just over a week after the latest attack, that would all change. A prowler shot and seriously wounded an 18-year-old youth who with his father was chasing him in a residential neighborhood in East Sacramento at 10.30 last night. Rodney Richard Miller was in critical condition when he was admitted to Sutter Memorial Hospital. The news article you just heard was from the February 17th edition of the Sacramento Bee. And it was referring to the February 16th, 1977 shooting of a young man by the name of Rodney Miller. And we'll share his story in the next episode of Criminology. But for now, Morph, we have to wrap up episode three. But we are just getting into this case. There is a very long way to go. And one thing we want to do before we end this episode is play for you a voicemail that we got from a listener. Hi, I just wanted to say I saw Morph last night on the ID network, the Golden State that's not over, and you guys were terrific. I really enjoy the podcast. You guys make my commute and my work day go by so much better. I just wanted to say thanks. Now, the caller didn't leave her name, but we appreciate her calling. And what she was referring to was seeing Morph 
on a show this week on the ID network, and the show is called The Golden State Killer. It's not over. And if you missed it, I'm sure there are a bunch of different ways to still catch it. I'm sure you can get it on demand or maybe even go to the Investigation Discovery Network website. Either way, try to find it if you can. It's a great show. And if you want to call us and leave us a message about this case or the show, you can. We love to hear from our listeners and we may play your voicemail on the air. Our number is 661-77-CRIME. We also wanted to thank everybody that took the time to rate and review Criminology on iTunes. We really appreciate it, and it helps go a long way to helping the podcast grow. If you want to find us on social media, we're on Twitter with the handle at CriminologyPod, or you can find us on Facebook by searching for Criminology Podcast. If you want to join in the discussion about the podcast, Search for our Facebook discussion group, which is called Criminology Podcast Discussion and Fans. And we want to leave you with a promo for a podcast we think you might enjoy. It's called True Crime Storytime. I'm Casey. And I'm Samantha. And we're the hosts of True Crime Storytime, a podcast for all things true crime. We will be bringing you fortnightly episodes covering everything from murder and mysteries, disappearances, theft and fraud, abductions and kidnappings, and more importantly, trying to take a lesson away from each case, because every story has a message. So that's it for episode three. Like we said, Morph, we have got so much more in store for folks this season. Yeah, we've got a lot of great interviews lined up. We'll be talking to different witnesses and and more victims of the East Area Rapist and some of the investigators. So I, I think you'll really enjoy what we've got coming up this season.